For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Are you ready for getting deep? <laughs> Andy Warhol once said that fashion is more art than art is. Is fashion art or is it craft? What is its role? I found this really good for and against piece in The Guardian. It's really old, like 20 years now. It's with the British designer, share a link to read it, Zandra Rhodes. You know, the one with the pink hair? She's amazing. And the art critic, Alice Rawsthorn. Now, Zandra, indisputably an artist herself, she reckons fashion is an art form. And she says, you might call it decorative or applied as opposed to fine art. But what's the distinction? Because the same amount of artistic expression goes into clothes as in a painting. And she gives examples of her mates from the 60s and 70s who were very artistic. People like Bill Gibb and Ozzy Clark. Now, Alice, who was at the time director of the Design Museum, was like, no, fashion is practical, she said. Yes, you can show it in museums and galleries, but she reckons that it only reflects changes in contemporary culture up to a point. Ultimately, she argues, an item of clothing is intended to be worn. Why pretend anything else? <laughs> now, today, I'd be tempted to argue that what it mostly reflects in contemporary culture is how materialistic we've become. Fashion was always about status, but in late-stage capitalism, for me, it's so linked to overconsumption, isn't it, and greed and waste. And I think when it comes to bigger brands, oh, they've just become so huge. It's hard to continue that sense of it being artistic when there's such big bucks involved. And you know there are exceptions. Tell me on Instagram who you think is an exception. One I reckon would be Prada. I mean, she's got such an artistic design language, hasn't she? Or someone like Dries van Noten. Actually just watched his documentary last night. It's quite old, but it's really good. I'd recommend it. Anyway, my point being that the fashion business is just putting money above art, whether it's Prada or Zara. But if you listen regularly to this podcast, you'll know that when I do interview designers, I'm after the art or disruptive voices Always love the graduates, the emerging designers, you know, people like Anyanga Mapinga or Duran Lantink. But if I'm going to interview a more established name, I want them to be someone who's eccentric, who's almost outside of the system. People like Andrew Logan, who is Zandra Rhodes' best friend, by the way. He's the British accessories designer who was on episode 172. Or Vin and Omi, who were the first interviews for this series. Another one would be um, the Australian designer, Akira. I love him. He's on episode 156. Definitely someone who goes his own way. Anyway, we'll share some links. But this week's interview is with another one. My guest is the Danish creative Henrik Vibsko. And he's a designer, but also a curator, a musician. He does costumes as well. He's a professor. He's definitely a person who thinks outside of the box. He shows in Copenhagen, but also in Paris. He's got a store in New York. And his collections are very conceptual. High concept, I'd say. Spring 2019, for example, was revolving all around the word wind. It was called due to sudden weather change. So good. Make sure you check the show notes to look at the visuals for this one. It's uh, thewardrobecrisis.com, as you know. In 2022, instead of a runway show, he staged a live installation on the High Line in New York during Climate Week. 
And he roped in all these Parsons students to do upcycling. And then they all tried to engage passersby in discussion on sustainability. So good. (laughs) I was at his show in Copenhagen in February and it was wonderful and really slightly mad. It was all about the tomato. (laughs) He's awesome. I could not love this conversation more. By the way, Copenhagen Fashion Week is returning again next week. It starts on August the 7th. And if you want to get the lowdown on why it's such a sustainable fashion week when pitched against the others around the world, then go back and re-listen to our episode with its founder, Cecilia Torsmark. She is episode 154. So many recommendations this time. Next week, I'll be bringing you another Danish story. I'm sitting down with the wonderful Cecilia Barnson. But now, let's have our minds blown by the singular vision that is Henrik Vibsko. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Henrik. Would you please begin by describing this unusual setup? Yeah, we just went because we are having a photo shoot upstairs. So we went down to my archive room where there's stuff which is, what, pretty old, 12 years old. I can see this box, exhibition. I can see a sign there that says shoes. And that's the main title, and the subtitle is Fun Shoes. Yeah. <laughs> I it's actually ar- really want to go through these boxes. It's an archive room, and we try for exhibitions and stuff to keep some of the more exciting shapes or colorful. Or The workshop we have upstairs is the creative place. And I have a brand, a fashion brand called Henrik Vipsko, my name which sells around the world, showcasing in Paris and Copenhagen, uh, a store in New York, one here, but then selling to other retailers, of course. But beside of that, I also do um, I do a bit of teaching. I'm a professor at the Danish uh, Design School and been doing St. Martins and Antwerp and the more European schools. But I also do a lot of uh, costume designs for ballets, uh, operas, Mostly I like dance, mostly. I was looking at pictures, they're Um, amazing. I mean, we'll share a lot of links so that you can see the work, but it is visually extraordinary and conceptually absolutely original. Yeah, but, um, and beside of that, then I sometimes do um, exhibitions at galleries or museums and stuff. And that's where all the boxes here comes uh, to life. It's a creative studio. It's very, um, like, a bit like a family uh, It is a bit like a family. I was here at this dinner that you had after your show. Thanks for having me. And it was like a family dinner. I was sitting opposite Judith. Judith Klingenfeld. Who is your head of women's wear for a long time. You worked closely with. Long time. 13 or 14 years. And then I was surrounded by other members of your team. Batiste, who works on your sculptures. Yeah. He's like a 3D designer, works on uh, yeah 3D objects, shoes, sunglasses, um, helps with the installation, but things which is more, you could say, physically. Uh, but it's tree. very collective, right? Yeah. And most of the people have maybe already been here before, either through um, at when they've been at the school or I've been teaching them or... They've been in an internship. Um, they come as interns and don't leave. And yeah, or come back uh, for because you also kind of um, get to to know them and what they're good at or what they are really capable of. Or it's also very much about the energy, you know. Um, so the energy was fun at the dinner because every item served to eat was 
based around the tomato. You had a, you said halfway through, I'm going to go and do a sofa concert now if you'd like to come or don't. <laughs> yeah. And then we waited. Let's talk about the clothes and what you showed for this collection, about some of the silhouettes and how maybe sustainability informed that. Yeah, you can say um, we use a lot of time on the materials um, of weaving, uh, getting things woven, and knitted structures. Um, so the material really has a big uh, focus. And you can say the shape is existing and we do a lot of, we, we actually, you know, make paper patterns for all pieces, which is crazy because no one does that anymore. Uh, everybody, everybody just work on a computer. I think it's important for how you shape that you kind of, you know, you know how to make a pattern and that you understand from paper to fabric to the sewing machine and what happens if you go one, two millimeters the wrong way. And I, I think it's important. And I can see from, from the young people coming here, it's also important for them to, because, you know, some schools don't even have that anymore. Uh, but, um, and now when we are doing, uh, you could say, um, 3D architecture for the body, I think it's really important to, to learn how to shape it and not just do it on a computer. I'm also old school. Uh, but we have sewing machines, and for some studios, that's like, whoa, are you crazy? You make you, things? You, you make actually things. make them? <laughs> you make paper patterns? Wow. So um, we actually use a lot of time on the patterns. Uh, but of course, they are shaped a bit more in towards not using crazy amount of materials. Are you actually thinking about that then, about reducing... Yeah. and how we can fit it on a piece of textile you know like how can like it be put together zero waste yeah, or trying to trying to, to cut down and so it's a very important part a little bit expensive part of the studio to have actually a, a sewing studio with with patterns and stuff but i think it's super important for the craftsmanship is same how beautiful uh, and hopefully the craftsmanship would strike back mm. uh why was everything based around the tomato? Um, the tomato started a bit uh, actually with a picture that looked a bit sad, but it was a picture uh, in a Danish newspaper from a greenhouse um, in one of the islands uh, we have in Denmark. Uh, but the greenhouse was empty. You know, there was no plants left because they closed it down because of the energy crisis that's been in Europe. Uh, so the cost of growing tomatoes here was too high. So this greenhouse just was just filled with cables, tubes, uh, water system, artificial uh, earth. Uh, that's how they're growing them nowadays, you know. So it looked this kind of a little bit like a Blade Runner and when they get into this kind of sci-fi room, but nothing is really growing there. And I got a little bit into this, you know, concepts and ideas. And I was like, hey, the tomato it has a long history in all kind of perspectives of, of culture and art. And it's a really big thing, part of the food industry in all kind of ways. Uh, it's beautiful. It's red. Uh, it's a simple. Kids love it. Also, all the uh, vintage can artwork from the 50 and the 60 is great. Um, so it just kept on tomato fights in Valencia and 
Have you been? <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't. I only seen I only seen it uh, filmed. It's pretty crazy. There's also a little bit sad sides about the the industry and uh, the people working there. And there's also something about the climate, uh, the environment. In Spain, there's a lot of uh, you know tomato. Um, if you look from satellites, you see those plastic worlds. Uh, you just see plastic from satellites. That's actually where they're growing the tomato. But it the last the last years it's becoming warmer and warmer so maybe the industry would actually grow further up to central europe or here um so there's a lot of things that i so i thought um yeah we started uh, working on it uh it's probably seven months ago and then in the middle of uh, our project there uh, suddenly um someone was throwing tomatoes at um, was it at Louvre or one of the museums? This kind of yes. activist. Uh, uh, actually, some someone came and asked me, "Is that the reason why you did it?" I was like, "No, we actually started before it. Just actually, Baptiste that um, you you were sitting next to at the dinner. He also like, hey, wow, what a coincidence! Like now they're throwing tomatoes because uh, of the uh, climate." You just said there's social issues. I was thinking about modern slavery in the Italian tinned tomato supply chain, which is actually mafia related. But I think of the tomato as wholesome, as something. And also we think of them as, uh, you actually wrote it in your show notes, you said you wanted to create a tribute to the tomato, flourishing fruit of the night, exploding in the colours of the sun. You say you're intentionally inspired by the fights in Valencia in Spain, but the collection soon began to be shaped by all aspects of its history and cultural place. But you think of, I think, the first association, and it's funny that you said kids love them, is of joy. We try to stay a little bit away from the dark side. I actually wondered if like, you wanted us to be a tomato, because yeah. I felt like I connected with it on a molecular level. I'm not being silly when I say that. I'm reading this book by Merlin Sheldrake. It's called Entangled Life about fungi. Have you read it? No. He's wonderful. I'm going to actually buy you a copy. I'm going to interview him next week. It's about fungi's connection to well it's about every single aspect of fungi in our culture biology and connectivity and it's amazing <laughs> because the show had such interesting shapes around the accessories that seemed to me to speak of molecules yeah. i wondered if you were trying to get us to imagine how we might relate better to nature and even imagine that we were inside or part of a tomato's experience. <laughs> On the runway, yeah. You can be a tomato head, you can, there's all kind of... What do you think fashion is for? And perhaps I'll add a little adjunct in 2023. Um, it's a good question. I graduated, uh, what, 22 years ago? And things has changed a lot. I'm graduated from St. Martin's where, you know, everything was about being wild, the shape, uh, going crazy concepts, uh, using a hell of fabrics, uh, blah, like very much on the aesthetic was important. Uh, of course, concepts and stuff. And then, which maybe lead into your next question, but like six years, seven years ago, maybe suddenly I was just like, what are we doing? Like mm. this industry is weird and suddenly uh, are we polluting a lot uh, is it sustainable uh, what we do and then you can say from from the shape and the form everything has changed into the material 
and focus on waste uh, sustainability, where it's made. We are trying to upcycle some of our old fabrics, uh, try to use the materials and convince the fabric mills because they are actually the ones that are our supply chains. Um, so moved whole, mostly the whole uh, production back to Europe, that it's close to where we send it out from. Where are you primarily manufacturing? Um, the fabrics are either woven in France, uh, Italy, Portugal. And it's sewn in Portugal, Bulgaria, a few small things in Denmark, actually. Are they? Uh, What's production like here? Very small. It's very small. But there is one knit factory left. Is there? That uh, we worked with some years ago, and now they're back on track and actually um, been having a little boom because of, uh, you know, the crisis in Europe and people's problem with lead time and materials and transport and the war and stuff. Like. So the shorter mm. you were to production was actually really good. But back to your question, what or why is fashion? For me, it's... Um, it's also a bit weird how I got into this industry. I think I could have ended up being in other creative industry. But I think it's, for me, super important how we communicate as human beings. Uh, and I think that's what still what fashion can do, how we, it's still a very fast communicator, how we appear, how you get into a room, how you feel attracted by someone just by appearing. And going to a concert without sound is pretty boring, but it's also pretty boring if you take the, take the light out. So you kind of also need the appearance. So for me, it's very much about how, um, uh, the character you build up, the codes, the signal you send, uh, uh, and how we appear as uh, human beings towards others. And I think it's been that for many thousand years i think so too but i think you also raise an interesting context that we're dealing with now that more and more people feel guilty about it i yes. meet a lot of young designers who are questioning whether they should enter it yes. as an industry because it is obviously a business but it's also the fuel for so much consumerism novelty newness yeah and the school where um, the professor had at some point at the master class uh, or the master students, there was only half of the students left because the other one left because they couldn't deal with, really? you know, the question of uh, really? of the environment. Um, that they were disillusioned, so they quit. Yeah, or depressed or chose other courses uh, or went on to graphic or whatever mm. because it was like just too much. And I was like, hey, please don't leave. You're like, we, I think, hopefully, um, that's how we survived uh, early on. Hopefully through um, science, uh, through education, through um, also media um, and the focus from that. Of course, right now it looks pretty dark, but you are a new young generation. You are the ones actually who has to help solving this so please don't run away it's like this is actually a good moment to to start up and see if we can actually change it do you meet resistance when you shake up convention 
Mm, yes. In general, I always like to, you know, if I'm told to do it one way, I always have to like, oh, maybe you could actually do it the other way. But mm. uh, um, I don't know what you call that in English. In Danish, you will be a Rasmus, that's a name. And most set would be different that you twist it around. In Paris, we did this presentation that actually became a show. And we slowed the tempo really, really Uh, we took the tempo completely out of the show and it was running for three hours, more like um, yeah, a presentation, but it was a show. Um, but we thought for a show, which maximum can be, you know, 10, 10 minutes, like, let's just take, let's make it 25 and just let it go really slow and just take the tempo a bit out of this industry also and that people hopefully enjoy... Um, movements and but let everything happen really slow you mentioned materials as being such a big part of where this has moved when it comes to sustainability mm. this season autumn winter 23 is the first one that copenhagen fashion week required all designers to live up to is the phrase which i like 18 minimum sustainability standards which has some links to this you've had three years to get to this point yeah I was part of the advisory board, which is big. So lots of different people have been feeding into how this might work and trying to make it practical, not as a sort of deterrent. <laughs> But it is strong because if you can't live up mm. to them, you can't show. And yeah. the hope is that then you would improve and next season or future seasons, maybe you join. Yeah. But how did you find that process? Um, since we actually started, what, in 2016, uh, and we were already on a good run with uh, chose of materials and uh, buttons made out of uh, uh, nuts and all kind of things. So in the beginning, it was actually, okay, we are already like really far. But of course, there's co coming more and more um, um, standards and and things that you live up to, which is slowly becoming, there's more challenge now, I think, than early on. Because actually I have removed all, uh, at some point we were, for the consumer to know, how do we explain that this is a, um, this material is a good material. Mm. And we were trying to, you know, put labels on, so it was communicated right out. And all those labels we have now removed. Which is a little bit demotivating, you know. Because of... Because the it felt the uh, yeah, context, that yeah, that um, we should not write that it's sustainable, and that word "sustainable" is just going uh, nuts. You know, there's so much talk about it, but actually, you can't say the word. And so now we're trying to only facts, only facts that okay, this is a eighty percent recycled uh, cotton. It's interesting you raise the frustration as someone who runs your own business with making progress, but then how things shift and, and around this labeling and language use issue. But if we create an environment where you can't talk about any of the progress you made, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to remove all the tags. And then you walk into, we were in Paris like two weeks ago, and you go into the big stores and they are like, this is, uh, you know, I can see the point of doing it. But, you know, and they are just really 
far behind towards what we've been doing i would say mm. but they are like i can see the greenwashing effect mm. and you have to really be aware with colors and naming things which is um, and only deal with facts do you think as someone who's participating in this event and obviously works out of copenhagen that denmark can be a leader in this because it's been interesting for me to see how many international guests at fashion week and Actually, media that weren't even here are interested in reporting on what's happening. I think there's quite a lot of things that are possible because of the science. And it's more, much more difficult in the US or bigger areas to control. And I think with also with Cecilia and the Fashion Week, um, with what I have lined up here is kind of a really good game changer for, first of all, for the Nordic, but also for the rest of the world. Um, so I think it has also when I'm getting demotivated and like, mm-hmm. well, what are we doing? We have to remove all the tags uh, that this is a good product uh, or it's a better product than the other product we have here. Then um, they also been a good help of saying, hey, uh, keep on going. Uh, mm-hmm. th- you are right on track, but yeah. But I think in, in, you know, small areas like this country, it's, of course, much easier to control and to uh, make things happen and with rules and registrations and stuff like that. Where did you grow up? In the countryside. Oh, did you? Yeah. Where? What kind of childhood did you have? Um, I'm from the middle of Jutland in a small town. Um, my brother and sisters are around 10 years older than me. Um, Does your sister have a restaurant? My sister has a restaurant. Because we were eating off her yeah. vintage-style yeah. crockery at your dinner. My brother is a priest. My sister is has he? a restaurant. And I'm doing clothing. So we're sometimes joking about that. We could do uh, like a Vips weddings, the full package. <laughs> but yeah, for the dinner there, we also use some of her plates uh, instead of just getting other plates. It's like, hey, let's reuse her plates. Yeah, good sustainability but growing up why fashion what kind of kid were you and why why i was um, probably is still a bit shy but i was very shy and i um, got a drum kit by my brother and sister when i was uh, of the age of 10 and that was kind of um, opened a bit up of a level of creativity and um then suddenly three years later i was with a little band uh, playing uh, in the national radio. Really? What was it called? Uh, it was called uh, the second letter of each name of the ba- uh, the band members. I think we were called Real or something like that. <laughs> but you were on the radio. We were on the radio. How playing. old were you? We were 12 or 13. No. You um, were children. Yeah. You were on the radio. Yeah. Good on you. <laughs> and um, You were a miniature rock star. And then... Um, it was in, yeah. How funny, were you recording at 13? I actually been trying to figure out, like, if I could find it some way. You know, I can't really ex- remember exactly when it was, but um, it's for sure cute. I think we were playing some, uh, we were playing cover num- numbers, uh, like Jimi Hendrix and maybe some David Bowie or something like that. Wow. But, like, kids. <laughs> but, um and then at the same time, it was in eight or three, I was peeking on the dance floor because uh, I was very much into breakdance and stuff. And I already at that point had, uh, you could say, the rhythm 
going on from playing drums. Yeah. So that was my little force. Um, was Jutland ready for you? Not really. But <laughs> I won a breakdance competition in 83. Wow. Wow. So I actually put that on my CV sometimes. Like, hey, I picked on the dance floor in 83. I was like, <laughs> how old are you? <laughs> but um, then I just... Um, the priesthood was, didn't beckon. The priest also played a lot of music. No, did you want to go into the priesthood? Uh, no. Creativity was uh, for sure a thing where I could fit a bit in. And um, I started studying building engineering. But I was too young to get uh, in, in, in the Scandinavian countries, you get um, student money. Uh, but I was um, only 16 and you have to, uh, from you are 17 or 18, you get the student money. Mm -hmm. Or oh, I was 17, it was uh, like half a year, yeah. And then I moved to the second biggest city in Denmark, which is not big. <laughs> but I came from nowhere and I was completely in a culture shock with uh, bands and music and people going out and... Everybody was dressed in black and pointy shoes and listened to the Smiths and all kind of things. What is this city? Uh, it's called Aarhus. And then um, I was quitting that building engineering uh, school and um, just played music. Music, 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 music uh, in different bands. Very kind of noise, uh, very British-inspired music music. Uh, And then at some point, because I was young, on the door, the city council had this program for unemployed young people. So they could choose to go to, um, um, in, in the Denmark, you have this called Højskole, which is kind of um, um, a farm or a castle where there's a school on where you can choose three courses um, could be philosophy music and drama Denmark is awesome um, I mean this is not a youth program okay it's like a foundation school right, kind right. Of. Um, but then because I got it for free because and I was applying for architecture because like uh, and there's this foundation school for architecture where you live for five months mm. you get food doo -doo -doo, and you do and you sing in the morning and all kind of things and everybody is between 20 to 40. Then, And you sing in the morning. Yeah, that's all kind of, uh, it's like old tradition. Well, um, I'm still coming back to the fact that Denmark is awesome. It's like if you have nothing to do and they're worried about youth not progressing, then they encourage you to go and do philosophy or live in, in an architecture school where everybody sings. Yeah. This is not the way of America. <laughs> no, but um, then uh, I got onto the, I was applying this architect, the cool one, uh, the architect foundation high schooler. Mm. And, uh, and that's where you put breakdancing champion on your CV. I also put that in, of course, when I <laughs> had to impress. But um, it was fully booked, and I was on the waiting list. And I called them, and it was like, "Don't, you know, it's not gonna happen." I was like, mm. "So I called my mom. It's like it's not gonna happen." And she's like, "Oh, your cousin Reke Vipskov. She got in on a school, like a foundation high school, and they have tons of space, and they had." A drama, which were not my thing for sure, being shy. They had um, music, and at that point I already played music for, what, 14, 15 years, so it was a bit boring. Then they had design. So I was like, okay, start design, 
I start uh, in two days. And then I was at the school where everybody was, um, you know, working on their portfolio for applying for the design school, but I wasn't. I was just there for... You didn't even know what they were. No. I know this story that someone was like, oh, I'm going to St. Martin's, and you were like, oh, yeah, yeah me too. What's that? Then I met a girl <laughs> who was like... Um, um, oh, you met a girl. You were flirting with her. And she was like, St. Martin's? Like, yeah, St. Martin's. Sounds like a, a song. Then I started at St. Martin's, got in. Um, it's a very competitive school to get into. Yeah, but um, I got in. And um, there's more stories to that, but I don't know how deep we should go. <laughs> but uh, before that, I actually applied the, the Danish Design School. And I thought like, okay, it was a four-day test where each day you get a new chance. And um, you have to first apply with your portfolio. So it's like, whoa, you, you know, there's a thousand Uh, students applying so you better be good so it's like I have to come up with something brilliant so I made this uh, you know a lot of drawings classical drawings cookie drawings uh, then I also thought maybe the portfolio the black portfolio where you put all your drawings and maybe that could be something else so I made this cucumber with uh, what is it called pickle juice you know pickle juice and cucumber and I put some transparent uh, letters inside of it and I made it into this I sealed everything in a big uh, portfolio with it G looked Gherkins. great it looked super great so <laughs> my name was floating inside of cucumbers and then with the drawings in between this whole thing and I sent it out to the design school And uh, suddenly I had a feedback. They called me. Hello. Um, this is from the design school. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Hello. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. you would want like, Can you quickly get out to the office? Mine exploded. They didn't want you. No, no. But I still <laughs> made it. I still made it to the test. And then I thought, okay, I'm really far behind. I made this really bad mistake with the explosion at the school office of cucumber and juice. Now I just have to go insane. And they were like, <laughs> like those four days I had this conversation in the end, they're like, oh, we're not really sure. It's super spacey what you've been working on. We don't understand I made a long, um, a big three meter tall potato tower with, uh, you know, um, two sticks. And that Two sticks? Yeah. So I was what, like, "What is a potato tower?" Um, it was just small potatoes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then a lot of uh, those, yeah, toothpicks, um, and then put I put them together, and I built, I worked, and you had one day, you know, so I was just building this massive tower, and that was a symbol of uh, work in cross discipline that you could form 3D shape but also work with sculptures uh, whatever something but they were the teachers were like completely lost and like oh the cucumber guy what is he doing now so you went to St. Martin's I ended up at St. Martin's which is obviously a famous school from which many of our of our most illustrious designers have graduated fine yeah. but what was it like for you there um it was um I think it took me a few years to get a little bit, um, I was not really comfy. Um, and I also left, you know, something here. I was playing in a band and played some really big festivals, but I was very like, hey, I'm moving to London. Start again. 
And then being on this school where there was so much uh, competition and you walk down the Hall of Fame where you see all the big ones. And and I didn't really know if I wanted to be a fashion designer or I was not a fashion designer in that way. So it took me a while to find a little bit my way through it. And then I did a, they always have the white brief, which is a white project. And then I did like a inflatable big white egg suit. Uh, that could you, you could be in a rucksack on your back, but you could also blow it up and you look like an egg. And then um, all my student colleagues uh, were like, great. And the teachers were like, great, Henrik. Oh, there was a good uh, applause. And then I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Bring it. This Bring is what it I'm on. Do. <laughs> Suddenly I got a little bit more self-confidence. And then, yeah. You've said a couple of times during this conversation that you're shy. I feel like there's this idea that you have to be the room filler, the noisiest, the most confident, especially with social media and how hyper-competitive it all is. But you found a way that yeah, isn't I've, that. What advice would you give or how do you navigate that? Um, there's two advices, right? Either... You really, you work hard and you keep on going and you keep believing. And um, my old professor from St. Martin, Louise Wilson. Oh, incredible, um, Louise Wilson. She was, was like, the you're greatest. not a shit before you've done uh, 10 years uh, because then you have proof that you have a full circle. She was hard, right? But amazing. Very hard. Throwing sandwiches at, not at me, but um, oh, she was very sharp. Also, pointy sharp on seeing problems. Anyway. But um, she would say, you've got to put the time in. You've yeah. got to be dedicated. You have to. If you have done it for 10 years, then you prove that it's uh, sustainable, you, that you have a full circle of uh, uh, clients, consumer, uh, that there is this way of someone buying something and the end, a little bit of money would get back to you, that you get it back uh, so you can continue. So you have to keep on going and, and hopefully find a way through it. And maybe it doesn't become in fashion, but maybe you end up doing, you know, textiles, uh, graphic, uh, something else. But the other advice is it's really tough. And there's only a few who will make it. So if you're not feeling that, then do something else. Mm, brutal. I often think of fashion as similar to trying to make it as a Hollywood movie star or be a musician of note. Because, and there's a reason I'm saying it, there's so many other pathways for success if you're willing to define it in a different way to the person on the pedestal definition that unfortunately still rules in our hierarchical culture. You're not a failure if you didn't become the Oscar winner. You could be a brilliant Exactly. craftsperson, repertory theatre actor and yeah. be happy. Yeah. But you have to know what, how you're going to define success on your own terms and that can be quite difficult because our culture doesn't really allow for very much of that. You've got to be quite steely. I, I feel it general, as a writer yeah. as well. Like, why am I not done a tart? Yeah. Shit, what is the point? That's how people feel in fashion as well. Like, oh, if you can't be Lee McQueen or if you can't be Galliano, then did you fail or... Whatever. A thing in that you have to give it a very long uh, try, but you have to accept failure and mistakes. 
I know that we are in a society where failures and mistakes are not so um, appreciated, but I think to keep on trying is and make mistakes and do failures is the only way um, mm. for progressing. And hopefully you will find your personal way into to this or something else. We started off talking about how your studio operates and how collaborative it is. I think that there is a case to be made for getting people who are entering this industry to see that as successful, being part of a team. We also talked about what does fashion mean in 2023 and how it's changed yeah, or how the context is changing. And yeah. I would make the case for the hierarchy is changing as well as the sustainability context that actually it's a bit old-fashioned to be only looking at being Karl Lagerfeld with someone following you around with a coke on a silver tray yeah. it would be nicer to be part of a team that made things collaboratively yeah i think it, it's very appreciated also here of course i'm the boss but i think for me it's very important to hear uh, what voices there is in the studio or mm. also outside so it's very normal that okay there's a request on that what do you think uh You are from Sweden. It's a Swedish request. I don't know, you know. Uh, so it's, or when we're doing a little bit like today, when we are trying a few things out, then always ask around. Maybe I know a little bit what I would say, but I'm always open-minded towards other opinions. And I think for sure for me, that's the way I, that constantly keep developing, analyzing, seeing, okay, okay, I get your point. Uh, maybe we shouldn't do that. That would maybe hurt someone. Great. Thank for that advice. Uh, or about form or shapes or um, structures. So I think it's super important to listen to other people. I was going to ask you what kind of boss you are. Shouldn't ask me. I hope I'm a boss that gives freedom for people to work. I know that sometimes it's a bit difficult for some people to to see that you know it seems very free and lively and you can join in with ideas and sometimes but there is of course uh, rules and sometimes it's in this kind of very free uh, speaking very flat hierarchy that we have it's very interesting towards i also have an american company where there's you can feel that it's very different the way the setup so when i arrive at the store there's completely another vibe than than here in denmark where it's very flat here mm. you know okay we're running out of time but i'd like to finish on pig yes um uh, the pig uh was something um what does it stand for it stands for practical intelligent genius and <laughs> what does it take to be one uh nearly everyone can apply who's working with materials you could say but you could also you work with thoughts i guess but are you then practical maybe you are but um i won a prize um what 10 years ago and i was like yeah maybe i should also make a foundation that could help new talents embrace uh, the future and then i spoke with a lawyer and he was like uh, henrik you don't have money enough for that because you can only put your the interest of what you would uh, put into it and at the moment the interest is zero it's like okay that doesn't work but he's like maybe you can actually go out and do work do something 
and give the money to someone you like to. So that became the foundation. So I have to go out and do some work and uh, the money I collect, I will give to someone. And each year uh, by 1st of January, you can apply for being um, the new uh, PIG, the Practical Intelligent Genius. And you would um, get a prize and be invited to Denmark and you can talk about your work and there will be a music, a party for you. And uh, you get this little uh, award and some money. For anyone who would like to participate in helping to fund this, you can buy salami. And then recently we started selling um, like <laughs> recycle from a project we did. Uh, a big installation where I did 3,000 fake salamis made out of textile. And uh, someone suggested, hey, why don't you sell them and give all the money to... Everybody the... wants them. Yeah. Everybody talks we're... about them. It's hysterical. It's yeah. become a cult. So uh, we sell them and we send them worldwide and the money goes to the PIG. I love your world of... Eggs and salamis and tomatoes and cucumber cucumber explosions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you